so hard to capture everything that happens inside of the hospital. You know in your heart what you need to work it out. It was the most purest, comforting thing. Looking away to the How do you accept there's a very high chance that you're going to die? my 27 years of being a nurse, I haven't seen that. From the Mind of Medicine podcast, this is the conclusion of Parallel Pandemics. I'm clinical health psychologist, Dr. Ryan Brashears. You're listening to episode five. If you fight and you fight hard, you just might beat this thing. There's no script for how this is supposed to work. It's kind of like a Hail Mary. Everything's a probability. You're still hoping for a miracle. Dr. Max Weinman is a critical care physician on faculty with the Emory School of Medicine. Here's an excerpt from a poem he penned and shared during COVID-19. None of us asked to be here, but we're not on this path alone. Amongst the sadness within the fear, far from what we've known. Compelled to answer a call to arms of humanity in danger. Willing to make the sacrifices for friends and loves and strangers. Unknown to one another, united now we stand, a fighting group of the resistance, a courageous, tenacious band, staring at voiceless faces, breathing hope to struggling souls, fighting to bring them home once more, despite the heavy toll. For our youth lies spilled upon these fields, unquenched by our sacrifice, a quixotic fellowship of soldiers who gladly paid the price for we are the doctors, the nurses, the friends, the soldiers, we few, that faced an enemy despite our fears, despite what we thought we knew. Despite what we thought we knew. In the transition from July and August 2021, Carlos eclipsed the 70-day mark for hospitalization. And like the words in Dr. Weinman's poem, his care team, despite their best efforts and medical knowledge, were rapidly running out of options. Dr. Lee was the ECMO attending. I was on ECMO service that week and his oxygenation is just progressively getting worse. 
And fortunately, at that point, in the first couple of days, this is just data that I'm seeing. You know, it's not data that he's feeling. You know, what, what's going on, right? We you know, do some investigation. And he starts having a fever here and there. And, you know, we treat him with antibiotics, we culture, and he's doing okay. We sent him for a CT scan. And CT scan says he's got um, um, another pneumothorax. Um, and he already has a chest tube. And it's in a location that's technically difficult to access, actually. Um, if I put a chest tube in blindly, I, you know, I'd be risking vessels. And it was not the cause of his worsening oxygenation, actually. Um, it was actually more of a sign of something more sinister. The next day, Carlos's shortness of breath worsened. His ECMO requirements increased. He was coughing. In review of laboratory indices, they were trending poorly. Dr. Lee suspected another episode of nosocomial pneumonia, and he considered the medical alternatives. It's kind of like a Hail Mary. Well, the options are, of course, to well, place him back on the ventilator, you know, sedate him, and then the whole, the whole gamut of things to escalate therapy, sedation, maybe even therapeutic paralysis for a period of time. See where he comes out on the other side of this. Every single time where we've done this, he's gotten weaker on the other end, and he had, he had already remarked before this last week, like, why am I weaker now? Why am I not able to stand anymore? Because um, every single time you get a, a hit like this, you, you're, um, you're weaker. And so that's an option to embark on all this aggressive medical therapy again, or to just call it as what it is. This is, you know, taking a step back. Is ECMO making him better? Um, not, no. Is it just giving him a chance to have more infections? Yes, that's what it likely seems like. I can't say 100%, but um, that's what it likely seems like. I, I never have the luxury of 100% certainty, right? That's, that's, that's one thing I learned pretty early on medical. Everything's a, uh, a probability. I think that with this kind of case, there is always a lot of uncertainty. And I remember talking with the team about this and saying, well, is there any chance of these things happening? And of course, no one can say with 100% certainty that there's not, even though you, you kind of know. So it's highly probable that um, he's not going to get better. And it became more and more apparent. <laughs> I consulted my colleagues, they, you know, they agreed that this is, he's not going to get better. And, and that, with that realization, we can you know, do the most difficult thing. That is to approach him with this information. So. Um, so I have a plan of action, right? So what can I offer him? This line of thinking didn't begin 70 plus days into Carlos's hospitalization. Like many of his colleagues, Dr. Lee had been playing this moment over in his mind for some time. Even weeks before this, we had been discussing the futility and, and like we've been having meetings with him and with all of us. The ICU is a busy place. It doesn't stop. Uh, for anyone. And yet, you know, it was very, very clear, you know, that nothing was hasty or rushed. There was a, a sense of of waiting on him, you know, and, and for him to be ready. In my own mind, I had been rehearsing, actually, and dreading. And I was like, hoping it would be not on my watch. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of wimpy. Uh, past the buck. And hopefully he gets better or um, somebody else has to do it. <laughs> On Carlos's 73rd day, Dr. Lee prepared to enlist the support of interpretive services and meet again with Carlos and his cousin, as the team had just a few days prior. 
that morning started much like those that had immediately preceded it. I remember I had visited um, the unit where Carlos was, and he was sitting there watching television. I imagine, you know, it was like many other days in the hospital for him. And he's watching TV, <laughs> gives you a thumbs up. There's no, no complaints, no complaints from this guy ever. And um, physical therapy comes by. We knew, at that point, we kind of knew, I think, where Carlos's route was going. He even had PT earlier that day with a different therapist. That therapist was Chris Cambrone. We did an exercise that we hadn't done before, and he was like, that was easy. Make it harder. He was still hoping for a miracle. Placing trust in his caregivers and hope in his higher power. Later that evening, Carlos met with Dr. Lee and the medical interpreter, Ana Marie Ochoa. Dr. Lee explained to Carlos that he was getting worse, that he had another infection, and that he wasn't going to get better. ECMO was not only not helping him, it was actually making him worse, contributing to more infections. He explained the situation, he was completely lucid. He understood that um, he's not getting better. He understand that there's a high probability that um, he never will. His wishes were known. You know, he didn't want to be sustained like this forever. It was not unexpected, but, but rather sudden. He was hit and then, you know, we had a meeting that night over the phone. All of us discussed it and we just shared, Dr. Lee shared his wishes, what he has talked to Carlos about and what Carlos had described. I told him, Carlos, now you are you. You are still yourself. You can think, you can decide, you can take your decisions. We don't know if that's going to be the case tomorrow, the day after. It's very good that you are still you. You are there. He asked us, what else can we do? We said, we can make you very comfortable and we can take you off this machine and it would eventually lead to your demise. And then he said, if there's nothing else to be done, pues ni modo. Oh, well. Okay. He said, yes, that's what I want. He didn't have any questions about that. He understood. Um, then offered to um, put him to sleep. And after he's asleep, turn off everything with him asleep. And told him afterwards, then he will, he will die. Um, he didn't have any questions. He understood. He just nodded his head. It was done respectfully. It was done with Carlos's consent. It was done with everyone around. For Carlos to, you know, make that decision, you know, to stop ECMO support in my 28 years or 27 years of being a nurse, I haven't seen that. So when it got to the night where he had been on for so many days without seeing any improvement and it was clear there was no way out there was no there wasn't anything else to be done and he was getting worse again he was getting another infection i remember i'll never forget this but i was taking care of somebody else that day i was like across the unit but it was just about shift change and Dr. Lee comes out and he's just got this somber look on his face. The entire, all the staff in the, in, in the Four North ICU have, have taken care of this man. And um, they're, they're, they're even more attached, I was saying, because they are with him every single minute, right? 
you know, they, they've really done the work of physical therapy, all this cleaning him, all this stuff. They've gotten to know him, his rhythms, and um, asked for the manager and the charge nurse to have um, a, a huddle or everybody to gather around um, the central nurse's station. And then Dr. Lee comes and tells everyone, guys, this is it. Like, there's nothing else that we can do. He's getting worse again. This is it. And um, informed them, the staff as well that we don't think that he's going to get better. The right course of action is to cease life support. Is not conferring any benefit to him. And they had already spoken with his family and spoken with him. His cousin was on the phone call when we when I I relayed this to him and offered him this plan, which he accepted. And I just kept thinking, like, why did we have why did we have to tell him that he was going to die? There's no script for how this is supposed to work, you know, or what this is supposed to look like. During that crucial conversation with Dr. Lee and Anna Marie, Carlos made three requests, which he wrote down on a piece of paper. The first thing that he wrote and the translator read to me was that he wanted his body uh, repatriated to Mexico. And the second thing is um, he wanted a Catholic priest. And the third thing is, No quiero morir solo. No quiero morir solo. He said he didn't want to die alone. And that was, um, that's just, um, you know, when somebody um, communicates that to you, it's just um, powerful. I don't want to die alone. A simple yet profound last wish. A wish that resonated and penetrated almost every single member of Carlos's care team. And the end of life, the end of life is something that is, that has to be dignified, you know. Um, everybody's going to die. That's part of our life. We're all born, we're all going to die. Life has to have a start, life has to have an end. But that end has to dignify that person's life throughout his lifetime. And that can't be alone. That just can't be alone. That's just not right. I don't remember if someone told me to stay or to go, I just stayed. And I stayed especially because of Carlos. When he said, I don't want to be alone, I'm like, you're not going to be alone. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I took it like my responsibility. I'm like, I'm staying here until that priest comes. We all met with him and we had both our interpreter and the staff who spoke. Spanish just letting him know how much we loved him. We held his hand and hugged him and let him know you know, that we cared about him. And um, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And after they were briefed by our intensivists, they all went inside his room and they, they prayed over him. Yeah, I'm sorry. I almost didn't do what I did because of like being anxious and nervous, but I just had this feeling like someone's got to pray for him. Someone needs to pray with him. Someone like, I think we need to go pray with him. And I said, okay. And I'm like, my heart is pounding in my chest. I'm starting to feel cold. Like my body's going into fight or flight because I don't like drawing attention to myself. And I said, I, I'll lead in prayer. And 
there had to have been like 15 of us that went into his room and sit around his bed. And I was right at his side and I held his hand and I, I said a, a prayer along the lines of trusting the Lord with Carlos's soul and knowing that he had been in control of everything up to this point. He was in control of this moment. Um, that he's always in control, even when things don't make sense and when they're painful. And I, I thanked him for Carlos's life. And then I prayed for peace over Carlos's mind and that he would know that he was loved, that he would know um, that he was brave and that his life really meant something. This is largely a credit to the staff. He was treated as a friend. Yeah, we called him by his first name. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not, you know, 430-something. <laughs> it's just, you know, called him by his first name. When the priest came, he's like, oh my God, this room is so full. And I'm like, yes, it is very full. <laughs> but he, he wanted to be with people. You know, the team made sure that, you know, his request was, you know, granted. And they were there around him. I'm actually glad that I was able to tell him, tell him. I said, you are a very brave man. Usted es un hombre muy valiente. Y yo estoy muy, soy muy afortunada de haberlo conocido. You're a brave man. And I'm really glad that I was able to meet you. There was one moment that stuck out before we all filed out of the room. There was one nurse who did speak Spanish and she leaned forward and whispered into his ear in Spanish. And it was the most like purest, intimate, like comforting thing I've ever witnessed. And I, I have to believe that it helped him. The decision had been made. Carlos made it. He received his last rites from the priest. And then he made one last call talking with his brother in Mexico over Skype. Carlos reiterated his instructions, said goodbye, and ended the call. He turned off his phone and put it by his side. He shook my hand. I said, I'm sorry we couldn't do more for you. I said, um, you know, thank you for trusting us with your care. Yeah, you know, he had tears in his eyes. He was looking straight ahead, though. And he closed his eyes and crossed his um, hands on his lap. And I and I pushed him a dazzle him. And he was then asleep and he was comfortable. That was the harder part. Now that he was asleep and he was comfortable, he's um And he was, he was placed back on the ventilator at this point. His cousin came, accompanied by his, his friend and his cousin-in-law. They came and, um, you know, they held his hand, they said some prayers. <laughs> and we started some more um, comfort meds and um, we turned off ECMO and then we um, took him off the ventilator and he passed away. 73 days after he was transferred to the Kennestone ICU and placed on ECMO, and 90 or so days after he contracted the virus, surrounded by his newfound family, 
of the Kennestone Care Team. Carla succumbed to respiratory failure due to COVID-19 and passed away. This is not the destiny we hoped for, nor the fate we sought, against a foe we've never seen, touched, or known, or fought. Mocking our youth and yearning, our hopes and innocence, an enemy for which we were unprepared and as yet have no defense. Imprisoned far within its belly, deep within the dark, despair our only companion, smothering and stark. Hiding our fears and terror, fighting for every breath, bringing them home to loved ones, be it life or silent death. We'll never know their hearts, their hopes, that murmur unfulfilled, but their names are engraved upon us now that they lie still. They are our brothers and sisters, our kin and dearest friends. None deserved this enemy's wrath or this lonely, sorrowful end. They will not be forgotten as we've struggled through this fight, finally freeing their souls of pain and setting them on their flight. And we are stronger because of them and how they changed our lives, for we may be their only testament to how they lived and died. We will gladly share their stories, the parts we came to know, until fate calls our name and it is our time to go. I was warned at the beginning of Carlos's story that it was painful. But these are the stories that also need to be told. Not just the ones that feel good, but the ones that hurt, sting, and still provoke sadness long after the outcome has been determined. We have to integrate these experiences so that we can feel, so that we can experience the full repertoire of emotions that we were designed to feel. It's so hard to capture everything that happens inside of the walls of the hospital, you know, without actually being present. That struggle of being in a room with a patient and having that tug of war, wanting to hold their hand, wanting to give that, that care, that holistic, genuine empathy to that patient, but also having a little bit of a, a shield up and wanting to protect themselves. And again, not knowing how to how to navigate that. The thing that I think healthcare professionals um, do very well is suppress. To protect ourselves, um, we've developed the safety measures to where we can emotionally cope. And you know, when I went through training and, and education, uh, we didn't talk about it. Right? This was not something that you talked to your attending physician about. Um, and in fact, you feared mentioning feeling this way that that you would not make it through. We weren't trained to talk about it. I want to turn back the pages of time briefly. If we look upstream from the pandemic of healthcare clinician burnout, we find a common antecedent, not a lack of compassion for others, but a deficit of self-compassion. It's what we often find with people who are achievement oriented, holding themselves to extremely high standards, sometimes impossible ones. A 2019 Canadian study of physicians found that self-compassionate physicians experienced more positive work engagement, felt less emotionally and physically exhausted due to work demands, 
and reported higher levels of professional satisfaction than their counterparts who are less compassionate towards themselves. Compassion is seeing suffering in another person, having it resonate with you, and then acting to alleviate that suffering. So we really just have to turn that back on ourselves and realize I'm suffering, give yourself a break, act on it, you know, talk to yourself in, in kindness, self-talk um, to alleviate that suffering. Um, but in all honesty, I do worry, are there really good clinicians, really good providers who may not stay in healthcare as long as they otherwise would have? I think that's what worries me at times, even for myself. Towards the caregivers that we have, knowing what they deal with on the on a daily basis, you know, I have a, a much greater respect and kind of understanding of the major emotional burden that these people deal with and the kind of emotional, psychological burden and trauma that they are experiencing on a daily basis in their roles. Fast forward to when Carlos was first admitted to the Kennestone ICU. And remember the narrative at that time. We noted that a June 2021 survey found that 75% of Wellstar ICU nurses and 80% of Wellstar critical care physicians had reported feelings of emotional hardening during the prior 30 days. I actually think that the care that Carlos received really shows a lot of compassion. I could tell just meeting him a couple of times that whenever someone walked into the room, um, they knew who he was. I mean, this is one of those cases that none of us will ever forget. I remember him. I remember his face. I'll never forget his face. Never. He will always be remembered in the minds of the caregivers on Four North. I can't think of a better thing to tell his story right now. I don't want his story to be a warning. I don't want his story to be ominous. He, he had such an impact on so many nurses up here. I think story helps anchor the care to a particular patient, right? You know, that again, this isn't a faceless patient or a generic patient. I watched the, the team preparing for, for Carlos's final moments. And, and I guess I, I find it really important to hold on to those uh, experiences. I think the word I would reach for is uh, solidarity. You know, this sort of sense of showing up for people and being there with them. That sometimes the most important thing I can do is just be there with people. And they're heroic, heroic. Just the amount of effort to do physical therapy. Oh my gosh. It's like a mountain of people <laughs> trying to walk down the hall. A mountain of just trying to get somebody to stand up. A mountain of people obsessing over everything. So why do people do it, right? Why do, why do, why do our nurses, why do our, our respiratory therapists, the perfusionists, why do they do it, right? They get paid the same amount. <laughs> they push for physical therapy. Oh, they took ownership. They push to get them stronger. Herculean effort. I can only imagine how, how much it hurts. All of the staff that spend so much energy. They put themselves online. And fortunately, not the outcome that anybody wants. He touched us in a positive way, too. So even though he he's not with us anymore, when it gets horrible and we're not so sad about losing him, we can remember all the good things that he he did for us even when he was here. I would do it again. It's, it's not a career for me so much as I think it was a calling. Even just looking back at his notes recently, 
it was hard. And I was just crying in the office, reading through the note when they pulled care and how he was able to talk to his brother on video and say goodbye. And it was hard and emotional, trying not to cry right now. I thought about opening up his chart and reading the notes, but I just kind of make myself do it. We've been witness to tremendous demonstrations of love, you know, family members, and uh, both um, both when patients survive and when both when patients don't. Some people remember people in the past, and some people remember people in the present. I like to remember people in the present. They're gone, but they're never gone. Their impact will always be with us. So although their bodies have passed, his memories, the emotions he created, the impact he has put into our life has changed our life forever. So his memory is not a past memory. He is part of all of our stories. He is part of everybody he, who, who he impacted throughout his life. His impact is with us and will continue to be. And he will always add joy to our life. He will always add that smile that you had every time you walked into his room. He will always add that dancing in the bed. He will always add that. And that should continue on to be with us because it's part of who we are now. Although Carlos eventually passed away, we gave him 70 days to be able to spend time with family, get his arrangements, chat with them, get some closure, for them to get closure. This is things that we could not have provided him if we did not have him give him the time. That's a big positive that provided him and his family the ability to say, okay, we're ready. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And if we can't soak in that positive, life is so miserable. We have to do that. There is the emotional human, inner human interactions that was a success. There is closure that was a success. There was time to the family that was a success. There was our ability to be, for, be there for him and help him go through his darkest times, through the decision-making that he had to do in terms of, he was ready, he was ready. And that by itself was a success. So success is measured at a different levels. I think the biggest thing is to capitalize on the light in the, in the darkness. To concerns raised about emotional hardening, Carlos deconstructed the narrative. Throughout his hospitalization, acts of love and compassion prevailed. And when he died in August 2021, he left a final parting gift, melting any hardening that was felt by his care team and giving those caregivers access to emotions that they may have otherwise kept inside. He gifted the opportunity to internalize that compassion, to sit with the reality that even though the outcome was different than anyone had hoped, that they had given their all, they left it on the field, they had invested, they cared, and they loved without moderation. After two years of a global pandemic, compassion still exists, love still abounds, and through deep grief, there is still joy. Evidenced by their voices and through their tears, this story is dedicated to Wellstar's frontline clinicians 
and dedicated to Carlos, whose life brought hope, laughter, and inspiration, and whose death is helping us to heal and to live on. Into the land of the living Black bleeds orange into blue I am coming to light Light is breaking through I can hear the bells in the city Across the ancient shore I am ready to fight
This was the final episode of Parallel Pandemics, a Mind of Medicine podcast made possible by the Wellstar Health System Foundation. Thank you to Zach Yoakum, Andrew McPherson, and the rest of the Maleshko team who helped direct and produce this series. To Mandy Sway and Trish Velasco, to Matthew Perryman-Jones, whose music bookends every episode, and to those who told us Carlos's story, Drs. Asif Saberi, Angelie Grandigay, Amer Rahman, Elias Chaloup, Catherine Tripp, Sean Lee, Danny Brandstetter, and Rebecca Gomez. To Brian Kibbe and Jordan Potter, Brian White, Nadine Lynch, Ramon Lorente, Sandra Grant, Megan Graham, Elaine Gibbs, and Caitlin Dooley. To Aisha Vaughn, Bob Anderson, Arlene Kilgore, Hilary Anderton, Chris Cambrone, Anna Marie Ochoa, and Karen Hilton. To all who work on the front lines, you are the pillars of compassion. And finally, to Carlos, for the gifts of hope you gave, for the life you lived, and for the impact your life continues to have on ours. Thank you. <laughs>